Hey everyone, it's Christine. So we titled the podcast 73 Seconds because when we started the podcast every 73 seconds, someone in the United States was sexually assaulted. However, what we have now learned is that it is now every 68 seconds. So that being said, we are going to keep the name 73 seconds because that is a nod basically to when we started the podcast and where things were when we started. However, it's really important for us to make a distinction that it is no longer, that is no longer the case. Yeah. On this episode of 73 Seconds, we are going to dive into how we as a community can support those in the LGBTQIA plus community. June is Pride Month, and we at Z Center could not be more joyful as we join three different Pride events locally this month. We recognize that the LGBTQIA community is more vulnerable to sexual violence, and we also strive to celebrate the diversity of sexuality and gender in our community. We are so excited to be joined today by two community partners who work to provide support and services for the LGBTQIA community. Megan and Nicole, please introduce yourselves for our listeners. Well, hello listeners. My name is Megan Sayer-Gilmore and I am a therapist who works in Libertyville in Lake County. I specialize in adolescents and adults. I specialize in the LGBTQ community. I am a gender therapist and I am representing stories of my clients today. I myself am a lesbian woman. I use she, her pronouns. And so um, a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is working with the LGBTQ population and specifically the transgender population. And while I do not identify as trans, I am a cisgender woman. I I do have the privilege of having worked with this community for many, many years in Lake County and have collected stories from these folks and, um, and will do my best to, you know, help represent them on their behalf. And I am the Reverend Nicole Farley. I am a cishet woman who identifies with she, her pronouns. I'm a Presbyterian Church USA pastor and a founding board member and the current president of the PFLAG Grays Lake Round Lake chapter. I'm also the longtime spouse of a recently out trans woman. Thank you both for that introduction and for being here with us today. We're so excited. Mm-hmm. Thank um, you so much for having us. Exactly. <laughs> so... Our first question, right, is Zachariah Sexual Abuse Center. We are a rape crisis center focusing on sexual violence in all areas, right? So I think in a lot of our work, rape crisis centers are typically thought to be geared towards women. However, that's not the case, right? We see all individuals who have endured some form of sexual violence. So we're wondering, how do you see in your work that sexual violence impacting it? Well, given that I work with a lot with the LGBTQ community, I'm going to focus on how sexual violence has impacted this community specifically as we're, you know, celebrating Pride Month and the purpose of this podcast. So the current research says that about half of all transgender individuals are going to be sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetime. Um, And that percentage is even higher in traditionally marginalized populations, such as folks of color or folks in the sex work industry, and who have um, other diagnoses, mental health concerns, substance concerns. And so we have a lot of, um, we, I, I have a lot of clients who are coming to me very much at risk or having been through sexual assaults and are needing to find a safe place with competent workers and healthcare workers to help them 
I know that helping roles in safe places such as homeless shelters or, you know, even doctors um, aren't necessarily safe for this population if the workers, although with best intent, um, are not trained in working with this population, can be, you know, further damaging and the community might necessarily reach out for support for, you know, from doctors, from police, from homeless shelters, from crisis centers, because they already have been you know, hurt by helpers in the helping profession, um, even those with the best intent. There's also fewer resources available, trained for this population in Lake County. We're gaining more and more professionals being trained. You know, we, for the first time ever, have a uh, LGBTQ center of Lake County that I'm on the board of as well, um, that is working on training folks, individual folks and businesses to be trained in how to best work with this population. But, you know, these folks are coming in already. I isolated, already rejected, already hurt, and it definitely can impact forming the immediate therapeutic relationship and trust. LGBTQ community members face a lot of isolation and rejection from their peers, from their family members, from, you know, adults who are supposed to be able to help them. And so when there's isolation, there's obviously more opportunity for abuse you know, specifically sexual abuse. There's also a lot of barriers for safety for this population, such as, you know, not being able to access shelters because of their gender identity, being kicked out of their homes, not having access to unisex bathrooms, locker rooms. So we're looking at a population that doesn't have as many rights, doesn't have as many resources, and doesn't have as many helpers who are trained in being able to work with them. Yeah. Go ahead, Nicole. Did you want to add on to that? I was going to say, yeah. So when it comes to the work that PFLAG does, we seek to be a place that fills in the gaps where LGBTQIA plus history is not taught yet broadly. We want to make sure that people know about those who have come before and struggled and paved the way. And in the same way, healthy sexual LGBTQIA plus relationships are not lifted up in the education system yet. So we feel it's incumbent upon us to offer that. And we've really enjoyed partnering with Youth Services of Glenview Northbrook for the education. Just as importantly, sexual violence as a broad topic is covered in a limited basis in the educational setting and informational settings. So even more so among the queer community, but we know what happens. So making it a topic that can be spoken about openly takes away some of the secrecy and shame, which keeps people from seeking help and care. And as we really get our feet under us as a chapter and move into our fourth year of serving Central Lake County, this is work that we really hope to engage. Yeah, I, I really think that education is the key to success in so many areas. And this definitely is one of those areas. And I think for all of our listeners, one of the things that would be really important to talk about is how to describe, explain, inform the larger community about gender identity for those who are new to the concept. Yeah. So I think what it would be helpful to understand first, if anybody is, you know, kind of learning this information for the first time is, is what it means to be transgender. To, to be transgender essentially means that your gender identity is outside of the social norms. You know, we have grown up in the binary system of male and female in that your sex assigned at birth, you know, which is when you are born and the doctor pronounces it's a boy or it's a girl when your sex assigned at 
birth does not match your gender identity. And that is what, you know, would, would make someone trans. So my sex assigned at birth was female. And I still identify as female. That is my gender identity. And so that makes me cisgender, right? And so anyone whose gender falls outside of those social norms would, you know, be able to identify as transgender. Now, folks who are transgender may or may not be interested in any kind of medical transition, you know, so some folks who are trans may want, you know, hormone replacement therapy to have a body that is more affirming of their gender identity. They may seek out things such as vocal coaching or, you know, facial surgeries or different surgeries for their chest or genitalia so that their body matches, you know, who they are. But these things are not necessary for someone to seek out or to even want you know, in order to be transgender, there's, there's no guide, there's no rule book. It's, it's, you know, it's something that, um, you know, that you do not have to follow a certain path for. Gender identity is described as your, in, you know, it's your inherent sense of self. It's just how you know who you are. You know, when I close my eyes and I think about myself, I just know to my core that, you know, I've always envisioned myself being a mother, being an aunt, being a daughter, being a sister. These gendered terms always felt very comfortable for me, right? For some folks, that is not the case. And for many folks, that is not the case. And they don't necessarily have to describe it or justify it to anyone, but they know in their heart. This does not match who I am. So that's your gender identity, your inherent sense of self, right? Gender expression is how you present yourself to the world. Your gender identity and your gender expression do not necessarily have to match. You know, there are certainly folks who may identify as male, but their gender expression encompasses more feminine parts of themselves, you know, such as, you know, wearing more feminine clothing or feminine hairstyles or nail polish or earrings, you know, so the way that you present yourself to the world is very important and can be fluid. And like I said, does not necessarily have to match your gender identity. For example, my wife, you know, her sex assigned at birth is female. She still identifies as female, so that makes her cisgender. So her gender identity is feminine, and yet her gender expression is quite masculine, right? So, you know, the, the, she identifies as a butch, you know, so you've got the, you know, she, she's a truck driver, she was a truck driver, and so she's got the you know, truck driver, you know, hats and her short haircut, and she wears jeans and t-shirts and boots. And, you know, so looking at her, you might say, you know, I, I don't know based on the gender expression how this person identifies. And that's kind of what you mean by you can't make any assumptions about folks that you see just based on what they're wearing or how they're presenting. It's really impossible to make an accurate assumption on how someone identifies. So it's really important to, you know, to make sure that you don't make assumptions and, you know, address someone as, you know, sir or madam or ladies or guys, and you use gender neutral terms such as folks or y'all, <laughs> things like that. Folks is one of my favorite words to use nowadays, because you just can't assume based on someone's gender expression, how they, you know, what their gender identity is. Also, to make all of this a little bit more confusing, you know, gender identity and expression have absolutely nothing to do with sexuality. 
So you're, you know, who you are romantically and sexually attracted to has nothing to do with your gender identity, right? And so, um, you know, we can't make assumptions about the relationship that someone is in or how they identify based on how they present or based on their transgender or cisgender status. I just keep thinking about the, the, the term assumption. And I'm just going to like go off the rails for here for a moment. I do it every time. Sarah gets so mad at me. I don't get mad at her. I'm just, <laughs> it's predictable. I know it's going to happen somewhere, somewhere along the line. Yeah. I'm always like, ooh, I have this like list of things that I have in my head that mm-hmm. I want to talk about. You never know where it's going to go because I know it's going to happen. <laughs> I do it every time. But I just think, I was just thinking when you were saying assumptions and I'm, I don't think we do it intentionally, right? But I think that there is something inherent within us that makes us feel in control if we have some sort of understanding or, and that's why we make these assumptions, right? I just want to kind of say that out loud, right? As someone who is a cis woman, right? That I want to learn more and challenge my own assumptions about things. And so I just think that that's good to, to talk about and say like, it's okay to have these these thoughts, but to not like to challenge them at all times, right? To constantly challenge yourself and your own understandings of what was or what is or what could be, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And it, it occurs to me, there was one thing I did want to respond with, but to your point there, I mean, it's proven we get a dopamine hit when we solve a problem. We don't have to solve it correctly. We just have to solve the problem. So we like figuring out answers and it's, it's comforting. And in many cases, it's a survival technique when you're like, Oh, I understand this is what's happening, but we're recognizing now in this day and age that that can be so damaging to another human being. If you're like constantly misgendering them, things like that. The thing I wanted to add was beyond the binary of male, female is the non-binary. There are a number of folks, Megan alluded to it with the fact that if if you don't identify as trans or as cisgender, then you fall under transgender. But transgender is a big umbrella in that case, and rightly so. So I have a number of colleagues and friends who are non-binary. And sometimes you'll see that they'll share their pronouns as he, they. Sometimes it's they, them. Sometimes it's one of the other varieties of expressions of a non-binary identity. And so that's another thing that challenges us in this day and age when we're like, figure this out. Is this person male or female? Even that doesn't solve it for us. And so making ourselves practice being okay with one, not knowing it's not our business unless someone shares it with us, but two, also recognizing, wait a second, it's not as simple necessarily. And I don't want to assume. We talk about the, the, you know, the issues of the singular they, which historically has been around since the 1300s in literature. It's, it's, we do it automatically when we say, hey, I've got a friend coming in uh, to the airport. Where should they park? Where do you think is a great place? Without even thinking about it, we're accustomed to it. It's just that we don't want to do it because it's uncomfortable when we're like, wait, I have this rule that I was told. So I just, I want to jump on the non-binary bandwagon for folks who maybe aren't as familiar with that expression. I, would, I wanted to add too, right? living in a heteronormative society, this binary is safe and it's comfortable. And for people who have been living within this space who identify as cisgender, heterosexual, right? It's scary to leave that bubble into that unknown, right? That you were just talking about, Nicole. But I think that there's so many possibilities and just understanding that whoever you're thinking about in this context, it's just another person, Mm -hmm. right? And so 
how they identify their sexual orientation shouldn't change the way that you're interacting with them because it's just another person on the other end of the phone or another end of the conversation. Yeah. I think if, I think about this a lot in the way that we work with sexual violence. When I first started at Z Center, I was a therapist that didn't do that didn't have a lot of experience in trauma work. And so when I came in, they were like, well, we don't ask them what happened. I'm like, what? I didn't know at the time, you don't need to know that information to be therapeutic or to help in these situations. And now I actually find it much more natural to not know anything. Like if, if I know something that I feel kind of strange about it, right? Like I don't need to know any of that. You don't need to tell me. And so in the same way, sitting in that unknown, sitting in that, that level of uncomfortability has made me almost more comfortable in working through other things, right? Because I've completely bypassed that whole level of need to know, mm-hmm. right? That resonates with me as a therapist because, you know, a lot of clients will come in and while I, I do ask right away, you know, what is your preferred name? And what are your preferred or affirmed pronouns, right? And I will absolutely ask that right away to make sure we're on the same page. But other than that, it's up to the client to share, you know, their gender identity, gender expression, um, sexuality. I'm not going to ask about someone's genitalia or their plans to transition unless they bring it up. And, you know, basically almost 10 times out of 10, all my clients bring it up because that's what they're here for is to help clarify that and understand that and to move forward. But it's not my right to know. And it's certainly not something I'm entitled to know. You know, a lot of my folks feel that, or my my clients feel that so many of their interactions with family members and strangers and friends centers around, you know, um, very intrusive questions about their bodies and about what they're going to do to change their bodies, what they're not going to do to change their bodies. And, you know, even, you know, how long they've known and how did they know and what are the signs and none of this has to be explained to anybody. This is very private, personal information. And if you choose to share it, it's a privilege to hear, but it's not something I'm going to ask my clients and they will choose to share when they're ready. Mm -hmm. It's not something you're owed just because you're in in a conversation with a human being. Absolutely. No one comes up to me and asks about my genitalia in public. Why would, you know, like that would feel very intrusive and offensive, you know, and yet it happens all the time to my clients. And asking about their sexual history too, like we're someone who might identify as bisexual or pansexual, you know, a gay lesbian, and and that's not owed to anybody either. <laughs> like it, you, you don't get to ask how many people I've been with or how I really know if I am gay, if I've never been with someone of the same sex, you, you know, again, that's an inherent sense of self and nothing that needs to be described or justified to anybody. And I find this helpful when you flip that question around to the heteronormative community. No one's going to ask me, how did you know you were straight? Like that, this is just not a question that happens. And if we're able to remember, if we catch ourselves in, in the wanting to know and say, wait, would I ask this of, and the answer is no, then the answer should be no for that person too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I actually had this conversation with my mother-in-law who is actually, I think, three generations older than I am I'm pretty sure but she had asked me that very question she's like I don't remember how she phrased it but my my response back to her was how did you know you were who you were when did you know that because I know that like 
as far back as I can remember, I know who I knew I was. Regardless of how I expressed that, I know who I was at that time. So regardless of how you express it, when you're X number of years old, you still know. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd like to add that, you know, what we understand about gender and sexuality is that it's not a fixed concept you know, it can be fluid and open to change, you know, the way that you feel about your body or who you're attracted to at 14 isn't necessarily the way it's going to be at 16 or 36 or 76, right? And I think that a lot of folks have a hard time understanding this and use it as a reason to invalidate, you know, someone's gender identity or sexuality. And instead, I'd really like to introduce the concept of is that humans were constantly growing and changing. For example, if I was the same person I was at 14 years old, I'd probably still have a Backstreet Boys poster in my bedroom, (laughs) right? But I don't. (laughs) And, you know, in that we're allowed to grow and change. And one thing I emphasize to my clients and their family members is that it's okay to tell them, you know, I know this is who you are right now, and I will affirm who you are right now, because anything other than doing so is going to be at the cost of our relationship with each other, right? And so I see you and I accept you and I love you. And if you ever change or identify differently, that's okay too. And I will affirm that. And it's not going to erase your identity right now. And I wonder in just the stories that I've heard and lived, I bet often I see as people begin, especially as adults, starting to identify something different than what they've been presenting as previous to that, it's a journey. And and so there's, I think maybe it's this, I'm not sure yet. And not every, and and because there is so much pressure to say, who are you? Explain this. It's likely to change. People might say, well, I think I'm bi, but then they might realize, well, no, I'm actually gay or I mean I know like there are a number of young people who come out as bi first to their families because it's safer it feels more acceptable whether that's an internal dialogue for themselves or not that journey is very I mean for my spouse as an example not to tell her story but to say that originally when she first began coming out to me and it's it's been a process that there was a an umbrella term under transgender that made sense for her. And she wasn't quite at a place where she said, no, I'm a trans woman. And so even that I've been able to watch that as an evolution since, you know, 2019. So it's, I I think it's normal for all of us to figure ourselves, even for those of us who identify as a heterosexual human being, I would be surprised that there wouldn't be people like, well, I kind of wondered, what do I think about that woman as another woman? In our growing years, we figure this stuff out as we go along. Why, why wouldn't we allow that and make space for that for people who aren't in a heteronormative societal description? So, I think I really love this language change to journey, right? And that's something I've thought about a lot lately because we are, we're also in the process of creating like a sex education curriculum. And one of the things that I have found within that is changing the language from like, when did you lose your virginity? to when did your sexual journey begin? Taking away this heteronormative societal construct of virginity and all of its implications and replacing it with when did your sexual journey begin? Because I think that signifies more that it looks different for everyone. And Nicole, like you were saying, it's very fluid and it can change. Speaking of change, 
let's kind of go back and talk about how the LGBTQ community has kind of come to where it is now. We discussed it's June, it's Pride Month. And so we want to talk about the history of Pride Month and perhaps talk about how Stonewall has impacted the LGBTQIA community, but also if there are any other more historically significant events that have happened that are really important for us to know, because as we are learning, right, it's important for us to be historically and politically competent in working with members of any community, right? Absolutely. I, I think I'll I'll take us back further than Stonewall. I think that's an important thing because just 86 years ago in 1935, there was a New York University professor, Dr. Lewis Max, who told a meeting of the American Psychological Association that he had successfully treated a partially fetishistic homosexual neurosis with electroshock therapy delivered at intensities considered higher than those usually employed on human subjects. This is our first documentation of aversion therapy in, in an effort to quote unquote cure homosexuality. That is within the lifetimes of many of our family members. If those of us who have grandparents who are in that, in that age group or parents in that age group, that long ago or that short ago really is an important thing to note that to be in the LGBTQIA community was considered damaged and broken and fixable um, and needing to be fixed. So as we move through as, as a community that's based in Illinois, I think it's important to lift up that not quite 60 years ago in 1962, Illinois criminal code reform, which had been passed the previous year, takes effect making Illinois the first state in the US history in which consensual same-sex acts are legal between adults. So still, there's the understanding that people are not mentally well if they're engaging this way. And yet, Illinois is saying, well, okay, but if they're consensual, it's legal. The jurisdiction that the government has taken over the bodies of the queer community is shocking and appalling. And so to think that it's only been 60 years since that was okay to be in a relationship that was same-sex is well, let me, okay is not the language, legal to be in a same-sex relationship is telling, I think. So then we move from 1962 to 69, which is a significant, significant year. June 28th in 1969 in Greenwich Village, police raided the Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street at 2 a.m. And that's, uh, like I said, Greenwich Village in case you need some orientation is in New York. For once, the patrons and the crowd gathered outside decided to fight back. And so the it, it's believed or named um, in some sources that the American Gay Liberation Movement began that night. And then uh, on July 2nd of that same year was the first gathering of protest with communities coming together. The following year, on June 28th of 1970, in New York City, the tradition of annually commemorating the anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising began with a Christopher Street Liberation Day march in what they called a gay inn in Central Park. And about 15,000 people participated, which is staggering when you think about all of the legal and professional and personal repercussions it would take to be out like that. But it made it the largest gay and lesbian rally to date in 1970. Los Angeles celebrated Stonewall with a march down Hollywood Boulevard that drew about a thousand people that same year and smaller marches took place in Chicago and San Francisco. And then on December 15th, 1973, so less than 50 years ago, 
After years of controversy and often stormy debate, the Board of Trustees of the American Psychiatric Association declares that by itself, homosexuality does not meet the criteria for being a psychiatric disorder. So if we think about our queer ancestors who are still with us, there is a point in their lives that they were very likely considered to be mentally unwell because of who they were inherently. And that is, I, I could use so many negative adjectives and adverbs with that. I mean, it's, it's, it's to think about what people have endured and still thrive and persist here and today will be part of what I'll talk about and why Stonewall mattered. I'm going to give us a little bit of history though, between there and here to catch us up before I do that. So in 1980, the Human Rights Campaign Fund, which many people are familiar with, at the very least, you may have seen a square blue sticker on someone's vehicle with two yellow bars showing equality. Um, it was founded by Steve N. Dean as one of the first gay and lesbian political action committees in the United States. And HRC's fund's mission was to provide financial support on behalf of the gay and lesbian community to political candidates who supported gay civil rights legislation. It is now the largest national lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender, and queer civil rights organization. Then we get to 1981, which is in many of our memories, where the headline was rare cancer seen in homosexuals. It's the first story in the New York Times about the mysterious disease that would later be named as AIDS, and that would claim huge numbers of people from that generation in the queer community. In 1988, urging thousands of lesbians and gay men across the country to be open about their sexuality with friends, families, and coworkers, Robert Eichberg, a psychologist and activist, and Jean O'Leary, the executive director of National Gay Rights Advocates, they launched the first National Coming Out Day. In 1990, the Hate Crime Statistics Act passed by the 101st Congress is signed into law by President George Bush. The act requires the Department of Justice to collect and publish statistics for five years on hate crimes motivated by prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, or ethnic origin. It is the first law to extend federal recognition to gay men and lesbians. And then we get to 1993, which was notable for two reasons. The Clinton administration institutes new guidelines on homosexuality in the military. We know it today as the don't ask, don't tell. And the policy in most instances prohibits military officials from investigating instances of homosexuality without prior cause while forbidding service members from expressing their sexuality openly. And that same year, the Massachusetts State Senate approves the first state law to protect lesbian and gay public school students against discrimination. In 1996, students at the University of Virginia organized the first day of silence in response to a class assignment on nonviolent protests with over 150 students participating. In 1997, organizers took their effort nationally and nearly 100 colleges and universities participated. The Day of Silence is a nationwide movement in order to make clear the ways in which the silencing of the voices of the queer community are impactful and hurtful to the world as a whole when those voices are not included. I say all of that because when we talk about how Stonewall impacted the LGBTQA community and the movement, it was a rallying and unifying event that made people understand that together there was power. And I talk about all these other instances that have happened since where that power has been exercised in ways that shouldn't have to be. 
And still there are so many ways that it shouldn't have to be, but there is a gift in that struggle that people have come to understand that they can speak up, that they should speak up, that if they are comfortable and safe to do so, they need to speak up so that they become part of the ancestors who make it easier for those who come after. So. That is, I, I have no words. I'm just trying to hold space for all that. I mean, I, I think I'm really glad that you included all that history, Nicole, because I think it is important when, when we're talking about certain communities being oppressed or facing discrimination, a lot of the times it's thought of, well, that's in the past, right? Well, that was so, so long ago. But by putting dates onto it, not only are we saying this wasn't that long ago, we have people in our family who have gone through this. There are people who are still alive who have gone through these events, but also it's it's shaping the community and the culture we have now. All of this has made an impact on the LGBTQIA community that we know today. And so it is, it is really important that we have these dates, we know this information, so we have an understanding of where this community is coming from and how we can support them and continue to fight so that they do have equality in all instances, so that hopefully in the future one day, right, there won't be this discrimination and there will be a, a community of LGBTQIA individuals who have this, you know, strong history and background, but don't have to face the repercussions, right? It's, it's making me think of um, when you're talking about generational trauma, like if you change something now, it's going to affect someone eight generations mm -hmm. from where you are now, right? That's, this is the same thing with the LGBTQIA community we're talking about. Whatever changes were made eight generations ago, whatever changes we're making now, it's going to continue to impact for eight more generations. So I think just making take, taking that macro lens to look at it. Well, and one of the most frustrating things that I think of when I think of historical, like historical or political competencies is the collective amnesia mm. that I notice a lot of in different spaces. And just ensuring that this is in one of those spaces, right? That this is, these are things that we constantly mm -hmm. do remember and, and talk about and, and, and bring to light. Mm -hmm. Not just oh. every year in June. Not just every year in June, <laughs> which is a great transition. Um, go ahead. I would love to, but I'm gonna, I will gladly transition with you in just a second, but something yeah. you said made me recognize that there is a really important part of this conversation we haven't yet had, which, when we're talking about the LGBTQIA plus community, we cannot forget the intersectionality of mm -hmm. other communities. And so I want to make sure to lift up in this moment, particularly as we're talking about history and Stonewall, Marsha P. Johnson, a black self-described drag queen who would in today's terms be understood as transgender and Sylvia Rivera, a Latinx self-described drag queen and gay man are recognized as the faces of the modern LGBTQIA civil rights movement that was birthed from the Stonewall riots. It is so important that we name that these are people of color on whose shoulders we get to stand mm -hmm. and that that we recognize that even if we talk about the improvements and the rights that have been given, even if they are legally permissible, we know that our siblings of color absolutely are not still afforded those things. And so I want to say that out loud and to say that granted a lot of work has been done, much of it benefits the white community 
so we we are not near done in the work that we need to do. And I, I think that's incumbent upon us, especially me as a white woman, to name that and acknowledge that. But I'd be glad to talk about uh, June if you want to invite the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think especially this particular June, being one of which where I think I, as just my individual self, as well as our organization, has really worked to acknowledge privilege, acknowledge what's going on in the community, acknowledge how we can be a part of anti-oppression. And coming from that place, we've been talking a lot about how do we show up for the LGBTQIA plus community and how can we do that in a responsible way. And one of the things that we're talking about a lot of is rainbow washing. And if you can maybe describe kind of what that is for our listeners, are you seeing it as more prevalent now? How does it impact the LGBTQIA community? Sure. Well, rainbow washing in simplest terms. If you've seen a company switch their logo to pride rainbow colors this month, that's rainbow washing. In that, it is most notable for companies that do only that that say, oh, we're supporters. Look at us. We, we know the rainbow colors and we can put them out here. So clearly you can trust us and you can be certain that we have your backs. And spend it's, your queer dollars here. I was here. just going to say, all, <laughs> all it turns into is you can spend your money here and feel like you think you're confident in this. So I appreciate what you named about that intentionality of the way that you are engaging the LGBTQIA community because it's most of us don't have time or energy or inclination to do the research to say, oh, well, wait, is this an organization that actually is supportive or do they just look like it? We're like, oh, that's good. I'm happy with that. And we, we continue on with our day. And so as an example, Forbes put out an article two years ago talking about nine corporations that outwardly facing look like they'd be LGBTQIA supportive and friendly. And yet, and I'm going to name them because I think it's important. Um, I'm sure there are others who have joined their ranks in these two years, but it'll give us a start to talk. AT&T donated over almost $3 million to 193 anti-gay politicians. UPS donated almost two and a half million dollars to 159 anti-gay politicians. Comcast just over 2 million to 154 anti-gay politicians. Home Depot, 1.8 million to 111 anti-gay politicians. General Electric, 1.3 million to 97 anti-gay politicians. FedEx to 1.2, 1.2 million to 75 anti-gay politicians. UBS donated just over a million to 72 anti-gay politicians. Verizon, just over a million to 74 anti-gay politicians. And Pfizer donated $959,000 to 52 anti-gay politicians. This matters so immensely. We might think that, oh, well, yeah, but that's, that's, they still do good things or they still, whatever. I wish it were as simple as saying boycott them. I know that it's not for some people. Sometimes you need to use FedEx. Sometimes you need to use a Pfizer vaccine. I get that. And it doesn't relieve us from the responsibility of holding them accountable for their misuse of the pride logo or the pride colors, because frankly, that's what it is when they go about putting it out there without any intentionality behind what they do, or even if they do do some 
active maybe employee resource groups within their organization, and then they still go and do this kind of thing where supporting politicians, that's, that speaks more loudly. It, it always has to. If you are trying to legislate against the people in the LGBTQIA community, nothing you do will overcome that act because that we know that that money has power. So that's the, the bigger, badder version of rainbow washing. There are the other ones which are not harmless, but simpler, like a local company in a mall putting up, you know, pride colored things, but doing zero for the community. They may not be going and actively working against the community, but by putting it out there and just taking money, what, you know what, I can donate somewhere and an Etsy shop of a queer owned Etsy shop to go get jewelry if I wanted that was rainbow colored. It's being thoughtful as a community, a broader community, not the LGBTQIA, as allies, as supporters, as friends, and as people who are in the LGBTQIA community, choosing not to support those organizations because it only reinforces, I'm, I'm a parent, and we said this when our son was young, don't reinforce bad behavior. That's what this comes down to. If you if you give them your money and they're not doing anything, you're part of the problem. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that to shame anyone. I say that to say, educate yourself. Know what you're doing when you do this. Support those companies who are actively doing positive work. Or if you don't feel like engaging in capitalistic society, which some of us are, you know, keen on not doing in that regard then go make donations to the Trevor Project or HRC or a million other small organizations that are doing work for the support of this community. So yes, white or rainbow washing is more prevalent now. I would absolutely say that rainbow washing is more prevalent now. It's easy to jump on that. It's easy to get the graphic designer in your marketing department to make a logo. I can do it at home. My spouse's business for which she works is not they're working on this. And she is one of the primary drivers, particularly because she's in human resources, in diversity and inclusion, but they don't have a pride logo. For her, I was able to do it on a cricket machine and so she could put it on her computer. It's different in that regard, but it was easy to see. So someone might think seeing her computer if they weren't in her organization, oh, well, this organization, this company is clearly supportive. That's baloney. This is all specifically that I wanted to do something for her, for her expression. So it's, it's easier and easier to see it in places. I go back and forth between being really excited when I see rainbows everywhere in June, because it feels very affirming, like a warm hug everywhere I go. And I love rainbows. My whole office is decorated in, you know, rainbow artwork, but, you know, and I remember, you know, back in the days, I think I was in high school when Ellen DeGeneres came out as gay on her TV show in the nineties. And that was when companies pulled sponsorship from the show because they didn't want to be associated with the LGBTQ community. So I'd like to acknowledge we've come a long way since that time, you know, in that companies are rushing to show support for the community. But I will acknowledge that this allows, you know, people and small businesses, governments and large corporations to show themselves off as allies, but they're not doing the tangible work 
to support the community any other time of the year, you know, and so all of the money that is going towards creating these products and, you know, marketing these products and all of the profits that are coming from folks who are buying these rainbow products, what are they doing with this money? What could they have done with the money instead? You know, as Nicole had mentioned, donating to a local community resource center of some sort, as opposed to, you know, spending your dollars. I'm just going to name something such as Target, you know, and we don't know what they're doing with that money. At least I haven't done the work to figure it out because as Nicole said, you know, the layperson doesn't always have the, the time, energy, resources, motivation to do that work. You're just assuming, well, this must be queer friendly. They must be supporting the queer community in other ways. I'm not going to name this business because it's a local business where I live. Um, but, you know, I got married, uh, you know, a couple months ago to my wife and we went to this local flower business um, to get the flowers for our home. This was an in-home wedding because of COVID and we wanted flowers to decorate our home. And we sit down with the company and the piece of paper that they're taking all of their notes on says bride and groom, right? And I immediately said, I'd like, I, I feel like this doesn't fit my family, right? I don't feel comfortable with this language. You know, we are two brides here, right? And I think it would be really very simple for you to change your paperwork to say maybe even partner one and partner two, you know, um, because first of all, the person might not identify as a bride or a groom. Um, we might have two brides or two grooms, right? But that is a really simple way of, you know, changing your, your, your paperwork to be more inclusive and diverse. And yet, in June, this flower company has decor all over their um, the outside saying that they are proud in rainbow colors and they've got the all of this pride decor for June. And I haven't had the time yet, but I really want to go back to this place and say, hey, I gave you feedback and requested you change your form and I'd like to see it now. And if they haven't changed it, um, I, I kind of want to put them on blast, <laughs> but I'm not ready to do that yet. But, but that's definitely an example of saying we will accept your queer dollars, but we're not willing to do the work to change, to grow, to include you. There's a fine line between allyship and marketing. You know, I, I read um, a quote from a queer reporter um, that, that said, being an ally is like being a wingman. If you make it about you, you're doing it wrong. Right. And these companies making it about them, like spend our money here. And, you know, and, and this is, um, you know, something we are supporting and look at how, you know, Adidas is pride friendly, you know, but if you're making it about the company, if you're making it about you, then you're really not doing it as an ally. You're doing it for marketing. And I, you, you brought up something that I really appreciate the fact that this is complex because there's, there was a social media post from someone I don't know, but it was a, it was a, the image of a mall in June. And the person said how conflicted he was because he said, I understand that these companies are just taking my money. And yet the 12 year old gay boy in me is amazed that I have a place here was the essence of it. I'm paraphrasing what I took from it. So yes, yeah. companies need to be more accountable and we have to recognize that there is still somehow potentially good that's coming out of this. It doesn't excuse the way they do it, but I'm grateful. I mean, that's one of the most moving parts of any pride parade for me is seeing those teens, those young, like those, those puberty age kids who are potentially now in the throes of trying to start figuring themselves out, 
seeing themselves represented and loved and welcomed in these sorts of venues. When you have that opportunity in a mall or a parade or whatever, there's a value in that. It means that you're, you are part of a community that sees you and recognizes you and celebrates you. Yes. You know, I, um, my, my first several experiences on my sexual journey, as you had said, (laughs) um, involved girls and, and women, you know, when I was young, you know, like I'm talking as a kid and as a teenager, but all of my early experimentation and the first person I fell in love with was a woman, but, um, at 14 years old when I, or was a girl rather, you know, she was also a girl. (laughs) And, um, when, um, my parents found out I was rejected and was told that this was not okay. And it was never talked about again. My peers bullied me and rejected me. And I pretended to be straight you know, identified as bi, but kind of pretended to be straight until I was, you know, 37 years old, which is when I came out as a lesbian, right? And had to leave a marriage with a heterosexual man to follow my truth. And at 14, when my parents said this was not okay, and it was not allowed, and when my peers egged my house and threatened my life because there were rumors that I was, you know, with a girl. Had I seen this rainbow celebration and all of the things that companies have done to celebrate the community, you know, even when you turn on Amazon Prime, you're like, hey, let's celebrate Pride Month. Here's some movies you might want to watch. Here's some TV shows that you might want to watch. Um, I mean, I think that would have majorly changed the trajectory of my coming out, you know, but this was back in 1997 when it, it wasn't as safe as it was today today and you didn't even see rainbows in places even it it was just a very different experience so I I, I agree with you Nicole that for all of the the younger folks who are trying to come to grips with their gender or sexuality seeing the celebrated and okay is monumental Mm -hmm. yeah so it's like there's this this two sides the rainbow washing right there's one side where it is providing this space and celebration for the LGBTQIA plus community, but then there's this flip side where these companies are not doing the this deep dive, right? That we talked about in our last mm-hmm. podcast to have this historical, cultural, political competency. They're not doing this work to actually sh- show that support, right? They're not changing their forms. They're not changing their language. They're not including pronouns. They're not doing all these other steps, except for the month of June, which has some benefits. But what does that mean for the rest of the months of the year? And what's really frustrating to me, and I think that this is the, the larger issue that I have frustrations around is like, what's so bad about living in the, like saying that I don't know? Mm-hmm. I don't like, just say you don't know. If you don't know how to support, just say like, I'm unsure. Can you help me? Like, right, just trying to be honest about, hey, we're working on, hey, we're trying you know, instead of feigning knowledge, competency, acknowledgement, whatever that might look like. Well, societally, we reward that though. We reward people knowing what they're doing and we haven't made it safe for people or comfortable or acceptable for people to say, I don't know, let me learn more. And the better we get at that, the better every aspect for every marginalized community becomes. Yeah. Right switch gears a little bit here. All right. So Nicole, then we wanted you to tell us and our listeners a little bit more about what PFLAG is and what your local chapter works towards in 
your community and how this also aligns with your faith-based leadership. Gladly. So PFLAG is a national organization. It's almost 50 years old. And our chapters seek to provide advocacy, education, and support for and with the LGBTQIA plus community. Our local chapter, that looks like a variety of things, the way we do it. Uh, we have monthly support meetings where families, allies, and members of the LGBTQIA plus community are all welcome. We show up and or write letters to school boards and village trustees alike when the rights of LGBTQIA plus folks are threatened. We speak to GSAs, which uh, more commonly now are considered gender sexuality alliances rather than gay straight alliances in the schools about the resources that are available to them. Particular to our chapter, we host a monthly Zoom support group for partners of trans folks, which reaches people not only in Northern Illinois, but also Colorado, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and more. And we are thrilled to say that we threw the first pride parade that went through our communities of Grays Lake and Round Lake just yesterday. And we could not be more excited to share the date of next year's parade as Sunday, June 12th, 2022. So mark your calendars. <laughs> when it comes to faith-based leadership, speaking personally, the most powerful expression of God's love that I have witnessed was my spouse's renaming celebration at the church that we attend. What made it so deeply powerful was that she wasn't simply being accepted into her fullness. Megan used this word, and I, I, I think it's such an important one. She was being celebrated. Everyone, no matter gender identity or sexual orientation, deserves community who celebrates them. And I see PFLAG as one more place for that love, acceptance, and celebration, all of which are deeply rooted in my understanding of God's joy in our beings. Beautiful. That is beautiful. And if I could take a moment to talk about um, what I am a part of, which is the LGBTQ Center of Lake County. This is a new organization that's you know just a couple of months old. It's the first center in Lake County of its kind. This is completely volunteer-based. I am on the board of directors, and I'd like to highlight some of the goals of this center that we're working on. You know, so far we've created discord servers that are a safe place for teens and a separate one for adults of queer folks in Lake County to connect with each other. There's an ongoing support group called For the Love of Queers that meets on Monday nights in Waukegan. The goal is to have several more support groups in the next couple of months, you know, as we grow. There's also a mentoring program that is being developed called Big Brister Program. So not Big Brother or not Big Sister, but Big Brister <laughs> Program. Um, we're also creating a safe zone training. So businesses can be trained in how to best support this population, not only with their employees, with their customers, with their language, with their practices and policies and forms, et cetera. The ultimate goal is to have a drop in center that I, I do believe the goal is for it to be located in Waukegan. So queer folks can come in and get support and resources and socialization and a safe place. You know, so this is something that we are, you know, working on in Lake County. And if you're interested in learning a little bit more, you can certainly join us on Instagram or our Facebook page or visit our website as well. But the goal is to create a safe place for folks, you know, who otherwise don't necessarily have a place to go. And there's a lot of, 
you know, individuals in our community that, you know, have not yet come out and need the support of programming such as this and support of programming such as PFLAG to make this a place where we can get education and, and love and celebration from each other. I think that goes perfectly with our finalizing, wrapping up conversation around how can organizations like Z Center, individuals, I know we talked a little bit about how people can be better allies, but is there anything else that we as a community can do organizationally, individually, things that we haven't already discussed that we can do to be better allies? That's a wonderful question. And thank you for asking that. I wish more people would ask that. To be an actionable ally, your words and actions must be in sync. That words without the actions are detrimental and actually harm the community further. You know, I'm I'm asking people who want to be allies to listen to stories to from by those who are part of the population they're wishing to support you know including books and magazines and documentaries and um, articles and just talking to people in the community seeking out information um, self-reflecting on you know your own biases the unconscious and conscious biases that you bring to the table that society has you know put upon us you know like the expectation of you know, the binary gender, if you're a boy or you're a girl, and if you don't fit in either one of those categories, then you don't really match or belong. That's something that we've all grown up hearing. But um, I think that small actions make a really big impact on, you know, everyday people. Actions such as, you know, when you introduce yourself, include your pronouns, although you may not be transgender all people have a gendered experience, right? I have a gender identity. I have a gender expression. And so when I say my pronouns are she, her, although I don't, I'm, I'm not transgender, I'm reflecting that I do have a gendered experience and I'm normalizing for folks to use pronouns so that when the trans population uses the pronouns, they're not even necessarily outing themselves. They're just making sure that their pronouns are going to be affirmed by others. So, you know, whether that's, you know, on your business card, or in your email signature or in your Facebook or Instagram profile, including your pronouns, even if you are cisgender, especially if you are cisgender is one small action that can really mean a lot and tells tells people a lot about you, if we're going to be honest. Also donating your time and money to organizations that support the population you're being an ally to, calling out inappropriate behavior when you see it, you know, at work, at home, within your peer group, online, using inclusive language. I know that a lot of people with the best intentions say ladies and gentlemen, or madam, or sir, or, you know, boys and girls, but this language does not affirm for all those folks who are non-binary and don't identify as a lady or a gentleman or a boy or a girl, and also categorizing a group of people saying, ladies, please have a seat, but you don't know if every single one of those persons <laughs> identifies as a lady, right? Even, even if their gender expression may indicate so. So to be on the safe side, it's really important for us to use all inclusive language, no matter who we're around, you know, such as students, learners, neighbors, I mean, you you can come up with all sorts of words to be all inclusive. And it's not ostracizing anyone, outing anyone, or, you know, putting anyone in the position to have to correct you. And if someone does say, actually, that doesn't fit with my gender identity, the proper response is, 
I didn't know and I'll do better next time. And then you correct yourself and you move on, right? It's, it's not about saying that you know better than the person does. It's not about, you know, saying that you didn't mean harm and, you know, and, and then doing it again. You know, it's, it's about saying, I, I didn't know, but now that I do know, I'll do better and not making it about you. And I'd say from the, the viewpoint of as an ally, I can name the things that I try to do. And hopefully that'll at least be a helpful um, way of pointing people into some action. For one thing, I make it my job to educate myself. I don't rely on people in the community to educate me. There are plenty of ways I can do that without putting the burden on people who already are feeling additional burden just because of the way that the world sees them. So sometimes, I mean, that looks, that looks like books. It looks like movies. It looks like podcasts. It looks like those things you've named, but I also name in a variety of intersectional ways. My Instagram feed is super diverse. Mm -hmm. It means that people can tell me who they are without owing me a darn thing. And I get to learn and pay attention and say, oh, I had never thought about that before. So I, part of my background is in the arts and I've actively sought artists who are diverse in a variety of ways they get to be themselves exactly as they are and I get to observe and say I didn't know that now I know more and it's I've not demanded anything from someone else so it's one of my favorite ways to learn in a way that is authentic from folks also somewhat to what Megan was saying about you know speaking up Part of that for me looks like practicing being ready to defend folks in the LGBTQIA plus community, it, having that muscle memory of what am I going to say if I'm around someone? Because it's one thing to say, I want to defend someone. I want to speak up for, I want to speak on behalf of, I want to not let that word go by or that phrase or that sentence or that joke. But in the moment, if I haven't practiced for it, I may back away because I'm not comfortable. So making a point of knowing how will I respond to that? And I will say one of the most helpful techniques that I've encountered to graciously and successfully challenge someone is to respond with, that hasn't been my experience. Can you say more about your experience with the queer community or the black community or whatever or group that they've decided is someone that they can't stomach, tolerate, give grace to whatever that is. I found it typically reveals that there is a need for that person to be in relationship. I mean, real relationship, mutual relationship with the people whom they are condemning and judging and excluding. So having a sentence or two in your back pocket is really important to be that person because where your courage might falter otherwise, that can't be a reason that it does. And lastly, it, it alludes to what I was saying about my social media feed. Listen. As a good ally, listen. Listen to the stories of the people who have lived the thing that you are there trying to help them support. The more I talk, ironically, as I'm talking, the less I get to learn about someone's individual challenges and struggles and really hear from them what help they could benefit from me. And sometimes it's simply showing up. It's showing up and being present and saying, no, no, the numbers aren't just these people who you will name in a particular way. 
we are together and we are one. I think that's the truest sign of an ally is when you're going to put yourself in the same risk as Mm -hmm. someone in the community that you're supporting. And so I strive for that. Obviously I'm not perfect in it, but that's my goal. And so I hope that's helpful for either an individual or a community. We can do it in both, both settings in those ways, I think. I like what you said about practice. I think being an ally is a lot of practice because we aren't necessarily taught these things from birth or in school or from the media, from movies. You know, I, one of the things I tell my the family members of the clients I work with, for example, who are transgender, is to practice using the right pronouns as much as you can to other people who know about their gender or sexuality, et cetera. So we're not going to out them, you know, but like, let's say there's a parent who is struggling with using the affirmed pronouns of a trans child, that parent can practice using the correct pronouns with siblings, aunts and uncles of the of the client, if those aunts and uncles already know, to their partner, to their therapist, to, you know, but just practice over and over and over again until you're blue in the face so that when you're actually talking to your child or you're talking about your child in front of your child, you're going to get it right. Because sometimes it takes a lot of work and it's not because we aren't wanting to get it right, but sometimes it's just really hard to get it right. And so we need to practice doing the right thing over and over and over again. And I'd add um, with the locations, we, we had a conversation with a parent recently at a meeting in the mirror in the car. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even have to be in conversation. It can be just saying it over and over and over (laughs) again to yourself because it matters. I mean, we, we know demonstrably that the suicide rates drop dramatically when there's a single affirming adult in the life of a transgender child and a transgender young adult. And so that matters immensely. It's great that they know that they're loved, but how much more so when they know that you, they're seen exactly as they see themselves. So. Yeah, what we knew we know about the LGBTQ population is that they're incredibly at risk for a variety of factors, including school refusal and anxiety and depression and self-harm and suicide attempts and completions, and the list goes on and on and on. And one thing that we do know is that the number one protective factors for these folks is parental support. And so as parents, and I'm a parent myself as well, you know, there was a time when I knew everything about my children and I knew everything they knew because I was the one who taught it to them. And then they started school (laughs) and then they started going over to friends' houses. And, um, you know, just uh, two nights ago, my son had his very first sleepover, right? And I'm freaking out about like, is it going to be okay? But I'm dying to have a more positive influence on my kids because I know the world is not always going to give them that. And to know that my support of them is the number one protective factor makes me want to do my very best to affirm who they are and to listen to them when they tell me about you know, who they are and what they're feeling and who they love, you know, one day they're going to, they're very young right now. (laughs) They're they're just finished third grade, but um, you know, but I, I want to do everything I can to give them the best possible outcome. And that's something that I say to the parents of the clients I work with all the time is that you 
can be that protective factor. You can be that change that, you know, that changes the trajectory of your child's life in a positive way. I think that's just a great takeaway from today that anyone can be that person, right? You can work to be that, that factor, that positive impact in someone's life. Absolutely. And for some of my clients, that's a coach or a teacher or the parent of one of their friends or a pastor or, you know, a, a neighbor, <laughs> you know, like these, these supports come sometimes in unlikely places, but for some of these folks, it means everything to them. And if it's one of the only sources of support that they get, um, believe me, it, it is life-changing. And I hear this over and over again in the stories of my clients that if it wasn't for this one particular person or group or club or place, that their life wouldn't be the way that it is right now, or maybe they wouldn't even be living. It gives me a lot of hope when talking about the LGBTQ plus center Lake County as well, that we're hopefully creating this space where if LGBTQIA plus youth in Lake County don't have that, that person or that group work create that or right Megan you are helping to create that we all are both of you included just being part of this podcast and asking us here today you are part of it well we're very glad to be yeah thank you both for being here thank you too so much thank for you coming in. our thank pleasure. you for having us